Thank you. Hold on, I'll start it. I'll start it. Hold on. <laughs> Let me get this. Happy birthday. done? <laughs> that didn't go live, did it? <laughs> well, it's really, really hard to embarrass me, but you got me. Yeah. Yeah. How to get Livy back. His birthday's not until June, so that's going to be rough. All right. Uh, First slide. First slide. Either one of you, it doesn't matter which one clicks that first slide. There is a radical difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, as we have been seeing in this series called Culture Wars, that there is not, while there is friendships and there is community and there is shared experiences, the believer and the unbeliever are radically different in nature, in goals, in purpose, and outcome. And... Today, we're looking at a very specific command that God gives the Christian, the believer, the one who has Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when we come to commands in Scripture, we generally face those commands with three possible options. Next slide. We have a new slider today, so uh, you have to pick up on my cues. Uh, we have three options when we are faced with one of commands, God's commands. And this kind of goes to any rule that we might face. We can look at that rule, we can look at that command of God and say, yes. And that's where it stops. If he says it, it's yes. If he wants me to do it, I do it. And there's no exception to it. It's a yes but we can also look at that command or rules in our life and we can say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to believe it. I, I, no. And I'm going to fight against it and propose something against it. The third way in which we can face rules and regulations and obedience, especially to God, is to say, yes, but there's lots of exceptions. And in fact, that approach Yes, but there's a whole bunch of exceptions, or there's some gray lines, or there's some fiddle room. goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were in the garden being tempted by Satan, and Satan said, did God really say that? And so Adam and Eve were like, well, well he said don't even touch it. And so they changed his command. So they look at the command of don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they misrepresent the command. And then they attack that misrepresentation and say, oh, and they fall right into sin. So they looked at God's command and they gave it a yes, but, with examples and exceptions. And today, we are going to be looking at a command that I fear most Christians answer with a yes, but. 
and have lots of little exceptions to it. And before we get to the actual verse out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and following, I want to tell you a story or remind you of a story that happened in my childhood. As some of you may know, my uh, mom is a, an incredibly strong believer, has been from the day she was born. She doesn't remember a time or a moment where God was not her loving Father and Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior. And so when I came along and I entered my early teenage years, about 12 or 13, uh, my mom noticed that I had some very strong addiction problems with drugs and alcohol. And I remember one day having that conversation with my mom about don't do drugs, and I gave her the line. Well, I, I just do a little. You know, at 12 or 13, I don't know what a little pot is or a little drinking is, but I was just doing a little. It really didn't, it was just a little. And that evening at dinner time, she had this huge, beautiful, wonderfully smelling pan of brownies and sit right in front of the table or right on top of the table. And she was, we ate dinner and I'm looking at the brownies going, oh, this is going to be fantastic, brownies. This was before the time where I started to dislike chocolate. I know that that's a sin in and of itself. But it was before that time where I outgrew my desire to have chocolate brownies all the time. So the chocolate brownies are there. We're done with dinner. And she like takes the tray or, or the, the, the 9 by 13 dish of brownies and almost like puts it in front of me like it was my birthday. And I got a huge thing of brownies. And I remember her saying, now before we have one, I just want to tell you how I made the brownies. What 12-year-old kid cares about how the brownies are made? The brownies, they're in front of me. I want to eat them. And they smell fantastic. And she goes, just want to let you know that I went into the backyard and I took just a little dog poop and put it in there. Just a little. I mean, just a little. Don't worry about it. It's just a little. Now, my mom in since that time, told me that it was an object lesson. She really did not bake dog poop into the brownies. But I unfortunately at that moment didn't learn the lesson, but in the future I have learned the lesson that just a little really doesn't matter. Is it there or not? Is there dog poop in there or not? Because if there is, I don't want anything to do with it. And so it helps you make that decision of, yes or no to God's command, and you really begin to evaluate the yes, but, and here's a whole bunch of exceptions, because it's just a little. A little won't hurt. A little compromise won't be bad. A little questioning of God's rule can't be bad, because, come on, God's rules are impossible to follow. Yes, they are impossible to follow. That's why he sent us a Savior, and that's why the gospel is given to us by grace. But he still says, that there are expectations on how you live your life. And he shares with us one of those expectations as believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 16, especially the ending of 2 Corinthians 16. He says in verse 14, the very first part of that verse, he says, do not be yoked or connected together with unbelievers. That's the command. Do not be unequally yoked or connected with unbelievers. Now, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to a Christian church, so his audience already know that there's a difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. 
And he's talking to the believer, the one who has Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the one who understands the gospel, maybe struggling with fruit in their life or temptation in their life, but they are a believer nonetheless. They are a child of the King, and they know Jesus Christ will one day return and bring them into glory, and they will enjoy everlasting life in the presence of the Father. They have a hope, a future that is absolutely glorious, even though the pain of the moment is real and it hurts and it's frustrating and it's discouraging. Yet to the believer, do not be unequally yoked or connected with the unbeliever. I wish I had a real-life story and example of trying to put two opposing animals connected together and plowing a field. Because that's the idea here in mind, where you have a donkey and a cow and you say, let's plow straight lines. My understanding, as limited as it is with farm animals, that probably would not go well. In fact, it probably wouldn't go well having donkeys connected to a plow anyway. I think they have to be oxen and bulls and cows and maybe horses, but putting two totally different animals together would be like putting a cat and a dog in the same cage probably wouldn't work well, certainly wouldn't work well. And so it's sort of like putting, maybe in our understanding, at the same table at a restaurant, a Denver Broncos fan with Broncos head to toe, with tattoos everywhere that says, go Broncos, and an Oakland Raider fan, which is now Las Vegas, which I don't even know if they've had any games yet, but could you imagine those two groups of fans sitting together, or, heaven forbid, Someone from South Side and someone from the North Side graduated different high schools and now have to sit at the same table. Whew. Impossible, you say. Diametrically opposed. You cannot function together. And God says it is likewise. The believer and the unbeliever cannot be yoked or connected together. And that's what that word there, yoked, means connected together. Now, very specifically, Paul, in this section of 2 Corinthians, is talking about idolatry, that there's no way you two can worship the same thing, the believer and the unbeliever. But, he, but it is a natural, broad application and principle of not joining a believer and an unbeliever together. And it could be marriage, it could be business, it could be intimate friendship, and it certainly has to do with worship. That an unbeliever should feel welcomed by people in a church, but they should feel very disconnected and uncomfortable because we're talking about a holy God that puts demands on our lives that are only met through Jesus Christ, and you must give your life to him. That should make the unbeliever very uncomfortable. It should not be a message of, oh yes, love and peace and friendship for all. That should make the believer uncomfortable because the believer knows their relationship with God is based on a sacrifice of an innocent one on your behalf. And that message of the gospel, Paul says, is an offense to the unbeliever in Romans chapter 1, that they hate it, that it is light and truth, and they reject it. In fact, they call it evil, and they call the things that are evil good. Diametrically opposed. And Paul says the believer and the unbeliever cannot have a cooperation that binds them together. And Paul, earlier on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe, verse 39, 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, says that they should not, a believer should not marry 
outside of the Lord, meaning that the believer should marry a believer. So not only does this text talk about that intimacy, but earlier on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's a done deal. Believers marry in the Lord, meaning the relationship needs to be there on both parties. This is where it becomes very tempting to say, yes, but... And then you fill in your life example of how it worked out for you. Or you fill in an example of maybe where it didn't work out for you. We have to be very careful to answer a command of God with a yes, but here's my real-life example that shows that not to be true. God's command is true. God's advice is real. It's accurate. And it's non-negotiable. There's no wiggle room or gray area in God's commands to us. And so why are we tempting challenges to God's command when we say, yes, I know it says that, but I love the person. Oh, you may love the person. I'm not doubting your love. What I'm doubting is your understanding of what God says. And God says this very clearly and plainly. It doesn't relate to just worship but it relates to any intimate relationship or partnership you may have with an unbeliever, there are dire consequences to that. But Tim, it's just a little relationship. It's just a little compromise. It's just a little. Remember the brownies. Just a little disgusted you five minutes ago. But now it's okay? The beautiful thing that God does in Scripture, and, and God is absolutely right, and it would be absolutely good if he just had a list of commands. And well, he does in the Ten Commandments, but he'd be totally fine not to have anything else in Scripture but do this, don't do that. And when he says do this, we do this. If he says don't do that, we don't do that. We don't need any further explanation. If God says it, it does settle it. But he is beautiful in knowing that as humans, we want to find out what? Why? Why? Why this command? Why is it so crystal clear? Why is it black and white? Why are you saying this? Because shouldn't love triumph? We talk a lot about love in Scripture. Shouldn't love be the foundation of a relationship? Love is a foundation of the relationship, or the relationship can't actually have a foundation if the two of you are in absolutely different kingdoms. If one is a believer and one an unbeliever. And God beautifully says, I'll help answer that question, why? And so the rest of the chapter into chapter 7 talks about some reasons why this is vitally true. Don't be yoked with an unbeliever. He says, starting at the end of verse 14, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Obvious answer, it's a rhetorical question. What's the obvious answer? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, so that goes back to proving the point of why I cannot be yoked, connected, and intimate in a relationship with an unbeliever because righteousness and unrighteousness have nothing in common. He goes on and says, Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And that's often a theme in Scripture about 
um, the believer and the unbeliever and God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world, this idea of light and dark, this idea of revealing and this idea of hiding. And Paul says, what business does light have with darkness? It doesn't. It doesn't. There isn't a relationship there, so why is there a relationship in your life, either in an intimate relationship of love or a business relationship that binds you to decisions together? It shouldn't be. And he goes on in verse 15, or what harmony is there between Christ and Bial? Now this isn't Baal in the Old Testament. Bial is just a kind of a generic term for the evil one, for Satan. And Paul says, the reason why you cannot be unequally yoked to someone is because there's no relationship between Christ and the devil. What common ground do they have? I don't think they have a common ground. Satan hates Christ, and Christ has judged Satan. They don't have a comfy relationship. They're not sitting around having brewski saying, hey, how about that game? There's no relationship between them. They are adversaries. One is the king of kings and lord of lords, and the other is the devil, the father of lies, the tempter, who tried to get Jesus to worship him in the wilderness and failed. The deceiver and the bearer of truth has nothing in common. That's why you cannot have an intimate relationship that binds you to an unbeliever. Paul continues and says, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Just gets to the point. What does the believer have in common with the unbeliever? Maybe I need to back up one real quick second and remind us that marriage itself, because this comes up often in the context of marriage more than any other relationship, God has never said that an unbeliever and an unbeliever can't get married. Marriage is an institution that is for all, for all men and women, exclusively a man and a woman, but God blesses people with marriages and children and family experiences, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. He simply said that that relationship, though, must be exclusive. Believer and believer, or unbeliever and unbeliever. And I have had one very difficult counseling moment with an elder's daughter who wanted to get married to a man who was clearly an unbeliever. Said it to me, to my face. And she was living in a world of yes, but. And her conclusion was, because her love was so strong for this unbeliever that she at that moment, right in front of me, denounced the faith so she could marry him. That was terrifying to me, devastating to that family, to that elder and his wife. And I know I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, and you're going to, in your mind, go, ah, see, it all worked out. Because eventually, he came to saving faith and brought his wife back to the church, and she reconfessed her faith for the Lord. And I say that not to give you the excuse of, see, it worked out for someone, even Tim's own illustration, it worked out for them. 
For as many as it worked out, there are many more that don't work out. Working out is not the rule, it is an exception. And regardless if it's an exception or not, you as a believer are called to a very high standard. Marry within the faith. Marry within the faith. He continues in verse 16, Or what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? There's no agreement. There's no middle ground. There's no safety spot. There's no gray area between worshiping God and worshiping an idol. There's no connection between the two. One is dead and lifeless and evil and wicked and destructive and fake. And one is beautiful and satisfying and rewarding and joy-giving, peace-establishing and satisfying. One is empty and one is satisfying. And Paul says, you want to know why being unequally yoked is wrong before God's eyes? Because what worship can be combined between God and an idol? There can't be. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, there's a verse that says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Outside of magic sleight of hand, it can't be done. And in fact, I think further in this verse, or in this section of verses, it says, Or who can walk on hot coals without their feet getting burned? I know how they do it with lava rocks on TV, walking across burning embers. I understand that, but the general basic principle, if something is on fire and you touch it and put it in your lap, you're going to get burned. That's how it works. The bottom line is if you're walking through fire, you're going to get burned. It doesn't matter if it's a little or a lot, you get burned. Further on, or also in Amos, one of the minor prophets, Amos writes in chapter 3, verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Wow. You're right. There's a foundation. They may not be absolutely identical. God hasn't created us identical. We're individuals, but we're created in his image and redeemed, so we have common ground as believers. We're not identical. God's not talking about identicalness. He's talking about individual identity in Christ together. But two can't walk together. They can't accomplish something. They can't fulfill their calling if they are not in agreement to begin with. How many captains does a ship have? They have one. They have one. One. And that is the principle behind the idea that there is one unity in a relationship that a believer is to engage in, and that's with another believer. There needs to be the unity. There needs to be that common ground together. In 1 Corinthians 15... Maybe it's just a couple swipes of your, your phone, the 1 Corinthians 15, but verse 33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Paul has to say, don't be misled, because you're going to be very quick to say, yes, but. 
They're high school buddies. Yes, but I've known them since grade school. Yes, but they're a good business decision. Yes, but they come from a good family. Yes, but, and you'll put in all your other modifiers that you want to. So Paul has to say, stop thinking about it. Bad company corrupts good character. This has happened in my life so many times. I know it's happened in your life. Whatever situation you might be in, and and it could be with uh, people at work or people at school, you try to fit in. You don't want to be the odd one out. I know that. You want to be liked. And so the dirty joke goes around, and for that moment you go, I'm just going to stay quiet. And you remain quiet. You stay seated. And the joke goes past, and you don't say no. You don't stand up and leave. You accept it. But you rationalize it going, well, this is all in hopes that I kind of have an opportunity to witness to them. Oh, that's the beautiful but if. Well, I'm using this as an opportunity to witness to them. And so you stay engaged in that. And I have found how quickly, how quickly even someone who loves Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength so quickly makes a little compromise and allows the swearing to continue, then allows the stories to continue, then allows the drinking to continue. And all of a sudden, you wake up and you go, where's my witness? They think I'm just like them. And I've had that comment. Oh, you're not like any Christians I've met. You're just like us. Oh, what a pain and shame to my Christian walk when the unbeliever can't notice a difference in the believer. And if you've been put in that situation or you may have a relationship that is just like that right now, I would encourage you. I would plead with you. I'd beg with you. This is the time and this is the moment to say, listen, my relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than my relationship with you. And I want to have a relationship with you. You're fun. You're engaging. I have a good time. But if Jesus is not your sole purpose for living, if He's not your Lord and Savior, we we can do things, but we can't have an intimate relationship where we're connected, where your goal is my goal because they're not the same. And I'll tell you exactly how to get where I am. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do you believe this? And you can engage in evangelism that is effective and real at that very moment because you finally have started to become honest with the person you're engaging with. Super, super important. But don't be misled. Don't be mistaken. Don't think you are the exception. Don't think you are stronger than another Christian. Bad company corrupts good morals every single time. Every single time. Paul continues back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to give us some more biblical reasons from quoting Scripture all the way through Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says at the end of verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? There is none, for we are the temple of the living God. Second time he said this to the church at Corinth, that you are living temples 
indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That has super importance because you are not your own. Because God has laid claim not just to your soul, but your body. How you use your body, how you use your time, what its purpose is, what its goals are, God sets. Not to punish you, not to restrict you, not to make sure you don't have any fun, but to make sure that you are safe and holy. Holy. He wants you to be like His Son in every way. And He says, on your own, you're going to corrupt it. On your own, you're going to think you're powerful and strong, but you will fail. Every single time in all of Scripture, when the saint and the believer says, I got this, and they don't turn to God for help, but they got this, they fall. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, yet without sin, depending upon themselves, twisting God's word, saying yes, but, and adding to the command, fell. Abraham fell. Noah fell. Isaac, Jacob fell. Joseph, kind of an exception, but we know that he was a sinner, so somewhere along the line, he fell. Moses wasn't even allowed into the promised land. He failed. David, a man after God's own heart, was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed, had blood on his hands. Failed. Prophet after prophet after prophet, God had to say, stop it. Do what I told you to do. And we get to the disciples in the New Testament. Ah, they were a bunch of 12 fine men that never had any problems. No, every one of them. And all you got to do is look to Peter. He fell, he fell, he fell. Then, of course, you have Judas, the one whom God appointed to betray Jesus Christ, who was with Jesus for three years, listening and ministering and performing miracles in his name, failed. And all of them, the night in which he was betrayed, trialed and taken to the cross, all scattered and left him alone. They were scared of being identified as a believer, as a follower of Christ. They would rather fit into the big group of unbelievers who were trying to persecute Christ because they didn't want to be singled out and themselves maybe martyred. And so they compromised. We are the living temple of God. God expects our lives to look and be different than the world. And he says, I will never live with them out of Isaiah and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God says very clearly, I want to be your God. I want to have this relationship with you. You need to want that relationship. And if you're claiming to have that relationship, then there are certain things that are going to be clearly noticeable about you that's different than the world. Don't live in filth and uncleanliness spiritually. Don't fill your heart and mind with garbage. Don't compromise. 
Don't set your heart to the unbeliever and want to be united and connected with them in an intimate way. It may work out, but there's no promise. The promise, God says, is when I am your father and you are my son and daughter, it will be better than just fine. It will be good. It will be good. I will be your God and you will be my people. There is no better relationship in this world than that one. God is our Father and we as one of His children. It is better than and more long-lasting than even marriage itself. Marriage will end one day through this horrible event called death, it ends. But our relationship with God as our Father transcends time. It goes past this life into eternity forever and ever and ever. God says, invest in that relationship. That is the one that should be driving every other relationship in your life. The relationship you have with Jesus should drive every relationship you have with everyone else. And, and maybe you can begin to answer this question in your own experiences, in your own life. If this room was filled with friends, however you wanted to find them, not church friends, but just your friends in general that you do things with or hang out with or, or have connections with or, or relationships with, would they be surprised or taken back if they knew you were in church this morning and claiming to be a Christian? Would that come as a surprise to them? Would that be one of those, oh, I didn't know that, or yeah, there was something, but you never told me. There should never be a doubt in any relationship that you have with anyone that the primary goal of your heart, your life, is to worship the one true God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There should never be a doubt. There should never be an aha, surprise moment. Oh, you're a Christian. I didn't know that. Doesn't mean you have to be preaching at them all the time, but there should be a sense in which your life, your conversations, the way you encourage others is vastly different than the way the world does it. And if your family and friends don't know that, then this is a beautiful opportunity from these scriptures to change that today. They should know it by your words and your actions. That He is your God and you are His child. Now the application of this is very simple. Because the very next verse in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul gives us the beautiful application. He says, therefore, he's kind of summarizing everything he said here, therefore, here's the concluding matter. Therefore, since we have these promises, what promises? I will be your father. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. You will be with me. We'll have a relationship. Those are the promises. Separate yourself from them and come to me and you will be satisfied. Those are the promises. So Paul says, since we have those promises, therefore, my dear friends, okay, what do we do? We purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Wow. I thought it was going to be something easy. 
like, okay, just, you know, make sure you sit in the front row at church because that really makes sure that everyone knows you're here and that you're a believer. Front row seats. It wasn't something that easy. He's saying live holy. Show the world around you that you love holiness. That you love purity. That you love truth. That you love honesty. That you love Him. Show the world that that matters. Show the people around you that forgiveness is quick. That anger, it's really hard to get you angry. That mercy is always there. That understanding is very quick. It's a tall order. It's hard to do that. But God has said, my son has done all the hard stuff for you. He's obeyed it perfectly on your behalf. Accept him, receive him, deep in your heart. Have faith in his message and his work. And you are part of my family. And we'll work through the growing steps and the maturity steps. That, that happens over time as you give yourself to the Word and preaching and prayer and study and actively walking the faith. Those things will happen. It's not an overnight miracle growth. It takes time. But that first step is making that decision in your heart and mind to say, if I want God as my Father, I have to step and live in a way that's dramatically, radically different than the world. And one of those steps today is to have relationships in your life that honor God and push you towards holiness, not away from God and towards unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful that you don't leave us to our own devices. How many times we wish we could make our own decisions and, and do things the way we want. But Father, in your mercy, tenderness, and wisdom, you have shown us the right way to walk, the right way to live. And Father, it is submitting to you and following your guidance and walking in holiness. Help us, Father, to be brave in making those decisions to honor you above all things. Even if it might embarrass us at the moment with friends, Help us, Father, to live in a way that's noticeable. That you are our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we are the temple of your Spirit. And that we strive for holiness each and every day. In your Son's name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Make sure that all of your conversations happen quickly outside. We can't linger in the building. God bless everyone. And thank you for the birthday song.